Hello and welcome to In Conversation With, a podcast from The Lancet Psychiatry. It's January 2023 and I'm Sophia Davis and this month I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Richard Morris who's an NIHR Senior Investigator and the Mental Health and Wellbeing Lead for the NIHR Applied Research Collaboration in the East Midlands. Uh, Richard's new research is on cranial electrotherapy for depression which is published in our issue this month. So Richard, your study that we're going to be talking about today, it focuses on people with depression. I wondered if you could say a little bit more about that condition and uh, why there's a need for improving approaches to treatment for it. Okay, so depression is um, a very big problem in terms of the quality of life in particular of people. And uh, depending on which measure one chooses to use it's uh, one of the leading causes of morbidity in in the world and one of the challenges of managing it is, is that we have a number of approaches but they're all relatively ineffective antidepressants treat successfully maybe uh, about 40 percent of people and cognitive behavior therapy successfully about a similar rate at least in in terms of routine clinical care. In some in trials, you, you often see better results than that. But of course, trials have highly selected populations. And um, one of the other issues, so we could do with better treatments, but the other another issue is that a lot of people have quite strong preferences about treatments and not and have experiences that they don't wish to repeat in relation to drug therapy or psychological mm -hmm. therapy so the attraction of this particular approach is it's it's a different approach and in terms of evaluation it's a device that's a, or approach which has been around a long time but not heavily researched and certainly not researched heavily in terms of high quality trials right so part um, of the appeal is giving patients a bit more choice essentially I, I think the more successful part of the answer to more successfully treating depression is to offer treat the choice more choice in terms of treatments that people find palatable not everybody would like this approach but a lot of people do yeah one of the big attractions of it is that people can do it at home but could you tell me a little bit more about what the approach is what the device is because cranial electrotherapy, perhaps not everybody's familiar with that. And it, uh, whenever you talk about electrotherapy, you always want to make sure that we know exactly what kind of electrotherapy we're talking about. Yes. Okay. So this this type of approach lends is is has more in common with things like tens machines, and some devices are now being used for migraine. So they're using micro currents, very yes. tiny currents of electricity. And um, cranial electrical stimulation is worn around the ears or sometimes a, a, full, a band across the head to, for, to create, create uh, good electrical contact. The particular form of cranial electrotherapy that we looked at is the most frequently used uh, form in, in the United Kingdom and also very commonly used in other countries, particularly the United States. And this is a, a device which is about the size of a mobile phone, 
superficially looks a bit like a mobile phone, mm-hmm. um, is carried somewhere on the person's body in a pocket or some, or a belt, and is collect, connected by lanyards and to to the earlobes. You need a good electrical contact, so you have to apply, apply a bit of a, some solution, which needs to be sterile, together with the pads that are used, will mm-hmm. provide a good electrical contact. And then it is thought that um, the electricity is, is conducted towards the brain uh, through the cranial nerves, which also explains some of the side effects that one might get with the drug. But it has relatively few uh, side effects. And in, indeed, for most people, at least in the trial, uh, we used a dose which was subsensory. Some yeah. people are very sensitive and will detect the current, but the majority of people can't. Yeah. So it is, has become increasingly popular, but it is only used privately. And one of the questions which has arose with, with the National Institute for Clinical Excellence has been whether this should be used on a kind of lending basis, mm-hmm. a bit like a TENS machine in primary care to patients with, with depression. And really, we conducted this trial with a view to providing such evidence should should it be required and to consider how it might be used in the the NHS. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious how you came to this piece of research. So originally, one of the other titles or one of the other roles I have is um, as an adult mental health lead for another NIHR centre, which uh, we have in in Nottingham, we have some, we have an NIHR centre called BindTech, which is a, a medical technology centre, and uh, this is government or NIHR funded, but it's supposed to work with industry to design better studies, and we were approached by the company that that is licensed to distribute this uh, product with the manufacturer who who is from the United States to help them design a study which would um, help the National Institute for Clinical Excellence to consider whether this is a suitable intervention for anxiety disorders where there is better evidence than for depression. So that's how we started. But from those studies, which were naturalistic studies, not not, and they were conducted over quite a long period, so it's a six-month follow-up of treatment. It was clear that people with generalised anxiety also improved in depression, and the two often go together. Yeah. But the difference was that, according to the NHS staff, because all of this was conducted in people seeking help from who from NIH from NHS improving access to psychological treatment services, and they're all people who did not respond to the first line treatment there, and were waiting on a waiting list for cognitive behaviour therapy on an individual basis. So while they were on that waiting list, we saw whether there was value in this device, but they had primary generalised anxiety disorder or primary anxiety disorders. When we reviewed the literature and uh, other people have also reviewed the literature. We could only find one very small previous trial 
in our view anyway, that really covered adults with depression that had not responded to an antidepressant. Mm -hmm. All the other studies were in people with depression as looking after other people like law enforcement officers or people who were perhaps more characterised by stress or there was a study in children but not in adults. There was a study in bipolar disorder, but that's a, a separate disorder and often treatments for bipolar disorder are not effective in, in unipolar depression mm-hmm. or major the major depression that we studied and vice versa. So the, it, it can't be, it can't, in our view, none of these really amounted to any any convincing evidence or acceptable evidence for people with primary major depression, Mm -hmm. unipolar depression. These devices have an indication. They have a CE mark and are allowed by the Federal Drug Administration in the United States for use in people with depression. Yet, all the evidence we could find was in one study of 30 people. So we thought there needed to be better evidence in in people with primary care, since NICE suggested this was something to be used in primary care rather than secondary care or improving access to psychological treatment. Indeed, I think NICE was right because GPs are used to giving out devices and this is a device. And many GPs have said to me they don't see a problem with using this for a mental disorder when they use similar devices all the time for physical disorders. And they and they manage both, so that was the conception of the study. Mm-hmm. Con- considering that the previous study was on thirty people, you managed to recruit quite a large number in the end, didn't you? It was over two. Yes, yes, yeah. Um, I mean, we'd had we'd been developing systems um, for from other trials, which we we have done. We have a we we are run, used to running particularly digital trials. Yeah, and you looked particularly at people with sort of a moderate, moderate, moderate severe level. Yes. depression. Yes. Yeah. So when a, when a treatment's not not uh, very established, we we've also looked at digital treatments for before with depression. Our first step is usually not to include people who are actively suicidal or have severe depression on the basis that they should really receive better established treatments first yeah given this the severity and the urgency with which they need to be treated yeah so it's a normal first step for us yeah of course we don't know therefore whether you know how this would work in in severe depression or suicidal depression but it's not the group of people that we should be running a first study in so do you want to say a little bit about what you found with this group of people who have moderate? So, in, in a trial of 236 people, the design of the study was to randomize patient, two groups of 118 patients with diagnosed depression, which we, we checked with a standard psychiatric interview. We didn't exclude anxiety because if we did, we would have had to exclude so many people and it wouldn't yeah. be generalizable. Yeah. But we 
We randomized 118 patients to active alpha stim, mm -hmm. 118 to sham alpha stim, and they received a daily treatment for eight weeks. Mm -hmm. um, the daily treatment would be 60 minutes long. They're supposed yeah. to be at rest or only doing light activity, which mm -hmm. means minor housework but not vigorous housework and um and people could go out but then they would be asked questions so we in a okay. video that we provided to people be suggested that perhaps they wouldn't do that but you could certainly relax while watching television mm -hmm. it's not something you should be doing alongside an aerobic workout for instance mm -hmm. so we randomized them we we made sure that they were the groups were equally balanced for people that had was taking antidepressants, and also for those people who had diagnosed anxiety disorders. We checked the diagnosis of the anxiety disorders ourselves. What we found uh, was that although there was quite a considerable improvement in both groups, there was no statistical difference in the primary outcome, which was observed depressive symptoms on the mm -hmm. Hamilton depression rating scale, the 17 version, 17 item version. Yeah. And on the secondary outcomes, if there are any advantages, they favoured sham mm -hmm. rather than the active treatment. But none of the differences were anywhere near clinically important differences. They were minor differences and they for the secondary occurred. outcomes. Yeah. But for the for time. the primary outcome for your uh, for the depression symptoms, it, it, it was quite a clinically important difference, wasn't it, in both of the groups? Both groups showed a substantial yeah. difference. And um, there are a number of possible reasons for that. Yeah, I was thinking, uh, that's exactly what I was going to ask about. What, I mean, yeah. it's all speculation, but it's interesting to think why that might have, why there might have been such a strong effect in the, in the sham group yes. as well. What, what do you think about that? Yeah, so I think the first thing I'd say is that it, we, we carried out some further analyses to look at some of the possibilities. So we we looked at intention to treat. So there was only um, there was the follow up rates were quite good at 86 percent, I think it was. The primary outcome was at sixteen weeks, and we looked at depression scores at baseline for eight and sixteen weeks. But the primary outcome was at sixteen weeks. That was decided because. There are plenty of treatments uh, for depression that work while they people receive treatment and then stop working as soon as they right. are not delivered. And so in your 16. study, there were there were eight weeks of treatment, weren't there? And then your yes. primary outcome so, was so another the, eight weeks later. Yes, that's right. Yeah. So we we looked at the observed data. Mm -hmm. So actually, what we recorded, and then we 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 did analysis on the basis of what we called per protocol. So these were people who followed the instructions as they should and also had a minimum duration of treatment of, of uh, four weeks, half the time. Mm -hmm. um, that was selected because in previous studies, including the ones we'd, one we'd done before, almost 75% uh, of the treatment benefit was seen in the first four weeks. So it was important that people compl complied for four weeks. And then we did another analysis, which then controlled for the amount of time dur duration of treatment, and to see if it's a, it made any difference. And um, essentially, the results are the same. 
There's no difference between the two groups. So whatever way you look at it, there's no difference. So what could explain quite a large drop in depression score, but no difference between the two groups? So the first thing is a statistical regression to the mean. Mm-hmm. So people tend to become uh, have lower scores than they started. But this is quite a big score, a big drop even for that. Yeah. And if this had been in routine NHS IAPS care, the vast majority of people in both groups would have been seen as clinically improved and therefore a success of treatment. Yeah. Um, a big thing is probably hope and expectancy. It's a yeah. novel treatment, and you often see with novel treatments uh, some kind of in, in enhanced effect. But there could also be, as someone who carries out you know, psychological treatment studies as well as physical treatment studies, I've been long aware of the importance of something called behavioural activation mm-hmm. as a treatment. And this is about establishing uh, people with depression are chaotic and they often prioritise other people rather than themselves because they see themselves as worthless and useless. But they would, if a child needs looking after or a relative needs looking after or even their partner who could be quite able, they will prioritise all of those things over themselves. So giving permission or requiring people Mm. to spend an hour relaxing for mm-hmm. themselves could could be an effective treatment and also doing something like that to get finding an activity which would relax people or give them confidence or be give them enjoyment is the first step of behavior activation which is an effective intervention for depression mm-hmm. so i think there's also an element of establishing a routine mm-hmm. and, and this allocated time that an allocated for time for themselves yes yeah. So I don't know, it's impossible for us to determine which of these, at least in one experiment, it would take other experiments to disentangle those sorts of effects. Yeah, but it's interesting though, because, you know, how would you otherwise persuade someone, spend one hour just relaxing and not really doing anything? It's almost, it's convenient to give this particular task. You know, you need to be quite restful in order for this, electrocranial uh, stimulation to work so if you were just telling someone no just just sit for an hour just for yourself i'm sure there would be a lower adherence to that i mean yeah i'm just guessing but yeah no no And, and and one plausible explanation for this for for the treatment is is that it's a relatively easy way of inducing relaxation yeah because a lot um, of people, you know, say, say you could try meditating, but a lot of people yes. struggle with that. You yes, know, just they do. Five, five minutes of a of an app telling me to relax, I'm going to fast forward to the end. You know, it, um, yeah. just anecdotally, uh, it could yeah, be so, almost easier to tell someone just to let this device do its work, and you don't have to do anything. It could be an easier entry point for some people. It, it could, it could be whether the electrical current is an important part of it or not is, is yeah. remains to be seen. That's the interesting. But um, you know, even if this device only had value in relaxing some people, for some people that would be, you know, quite a big thing. It yeah. takes quite a lot of effort and skill to meditate, and uh, and some people, if you tell them to relax, just tense up and become yes. less less relaxed. So. 
it's just a relaxation on itself in itself wouldn't normally treat depression yeah and so the question is really does it do anything more than that and, yeah. and to what element or what component is to do with the the microcurrent if anything well so this leads me to ask you know where does this lead us well, not us because it's not me who's doing it but where does this lead you and your group next for for um future research are you going to be trying to disentangle some of these questions or what's the next yes. step for you yes sir i i hope so um we we national institute for health research has refunded our biomedical research center and we have a, a mental health and technology theme and i lead the part of the theme which is to do with neuromodulation which for me excludes treatments that need anesthetics because i don't see them as you know of added much added value than what we already know about those sorts of treatments so we're looking at Thing, anything from transcranial magnetic stimulation, which is an established treatment, but could still, you know, there's room for refinement with that, through to really, you know, new treatments like some, you can use ultrasound to improve people's um, health, maybe, and, and possibly depression and anxiety, but that's at an early stage. Mm-hmm. And through to these type of microcurrent devices, um, they are very popular, and to give you one, uh, to give some one measure of that was in the trial itself. So the trial was conducted was due to start just when the pandemic, uh, COVID nineteen pandemic started, and as with all research at that time, we were stopped from six months from doing any any research. It all had to be COVID research. So we were six months behind in our recruitment strategy and our, you know, we, we uh, and our timescales for the study. We caught up that six months and finished a month early because it was such a popular study to recruit to. Oh, and um, so there's definitely the idea of it appeals to quite a lot of people. But of course, we need to understand better how it might work and does it work. So the, 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 our biomedical research centre, one of the things that we're going to try to work on, and we have have some funding to to do this now, we'll be, we'll be looking at the mechanism of action, mm-hmm. but focusing more on anxiety. So uh, my personal view and, and my clinical use of the drug is more towards anxiety. I see. Um, generalized anxiety which is a common comorbidity for those kind of serious mood disorders that i see but i have a a group of people who can afford it and that's one of the things that is a problem they use it to keep their anxiety at bay anxiety is horrible to experience in itself but also if you have a, there's some evidence that if you have a lot of anxiety and you already suffer from depression you're going to have a you're more likely to have a further episode of depression right so it's important to keep it away because it's a horrible thing to have anyway but also it will keep you well from the more destructive problem of depression for these people and they use the device for doing it and some people have been using it for years like that successfully and that, together with other work and 
Nice's uh, review of of the generalised anxiety disorder, which says that there is some evidence. That's all it would say. It doesn't mm. say there's enough. It says definitely there isn't enough evidence, but it says there's some evidence. But it would like to see stronger evidence in primary care, stronger evidence on things like how long does it need to be to to yeah. work, uh, comparison to alternative treatments, right. and mechanism of action. So we're going to tackle the mechanism of action. Depression for, and anxiety, or focusing a bit for, more on for anxiety. anxiety. Yeah. For depression, we, and in particular, we're going to try to find out whether the vagal vagus nerve is involved. One possible explanation for why a treatment might work for anxiety but not for depression is that it's much easier to get an effect on anxiety by stimulating the vagus nerve. Mm -hmm. But vagal nerve stimulation is is not a, not exactly a nice approved treatment, but an established treatment for depression. Mm -hmm. But when it is used for that, it's used for for people for long-term use and people expect to use it for many months before there's an effect so it's often the, the vagus the vagal nerve stimulator can be implanted in somebody's chest wall it's only done in in people with very severe depression but it it lasts a long time in terms of its effectiveness but it also takes a long time to get established mm -hmm. I could imagine not a not a very efficient way of getting of of stimulating that. There are possible explanations, and so we're just looking at one of those. Yeah, um, and we were able we're able to we're going to compare it to a treat to a treatment for anxiety that would work on the sympathetic system too, okay. and we're going to do a a control versus uh, another form of relaxation. So we're trying various ways of of looking at it in people with generalised anxiety disorder, then we're measuring EEG, and you can do whole brain mapping EEG, and we will also do fRMI connectivity. We hope to, and we're going to obviously look at people's subjective experiences and their symptomatic yeah. responses. We hope that that will at least establish whether the vagus nerve is involved, mm -hmm. And whether it's plausible that would be associated with anxiety, and if that if that's the case, we're also hopeful that we may take part in a in a in a large trial. This won't be our own trial, which will look at generalised anxiety disorder and and its effectiveness in 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 that. So that we we remain interested in this. My own. I think it would have extreme. It has a lot of value, I suspect, uh, for helping people to relax. And whether that's enough to improve people with generalised anxiety disorder, we we just need to have some more research. I'm, I'm yeah. pretty confident that at least going through the process is relaxing. Even in our own trial, we have some more qualitative and more detailed information about people's subjective experience of using this mm. and that is what people report they mm. feel more relaxed it's not just mentally they also yeah. feel physically relaxed and um, so i suspect that this probably you know has some value in some way but it, but I, I really think it may not have may not be the best approach for depression right 
It sounds like you've got a lot of uh, research cut out for you, with all, but it sounds very fascinating to try and understand all these different avenues, the, the mechanism by which it's working, the length of time that's needed, all, all these different uh, yes, subjects yes. of experience. Uh, so all treatments have something. Also, I think uh, what I would like to see in the future, and we, we don't really have this at the moment, and uh, but an aspiration for, for the treatment for depression would be something like the approaches that we use for some physical diseases like cancers you'd have a maybe you'd have a, a multidisciplinary team looking at it and they would discuss for instance for breast cancer maybe a surgical operation to remove the, the lump and then depending on the the histology and other features they would arrange radiotherapy and chemotherapy and anything else that's needed so what we have is usually a bit of this, you know, one-off treatments not linked together. Mm -hmm. I think the neuromodulation treatments could be used in a variety of ways. One is to get some improvement, which is then followed. And my ideal clinical care, which I can achieve sometimes but not often, is to sometimes we know only too well what the problem is in terms of keeping somebody with depression and what needs to be done about it. But the person is just too unwell to concentrate, doesn't have the confidence, can't struggles to get out of bed, let alone uh, do those things. So if we could get people to, to at least the point where they could uh, approach, say, a work rehabilitation type program or you know, a particular form of psychological treatment, mm -hmm. uh, maybe a family therapy or something like that, addressing the problems that particularly needed, then I, it would be really valuable. And I, I think if you can use treatments that have relatively few side effects, relatively safe, mm -hmm. it would be possible to do this on a large scale. If, if you need something which requires very intense approaches, you know, hospital treatment, multiple sessions, then that's fine, but it's, it's always going to be limited in terms of the uh, ability to to access it. Whereas if you have something that could work on a wider scale, could be in primary care, which is not so debilitating, then I, I think it opens up a whole load of possibilities, plus choice, which I, I, yeah, I, I, I think is really important. So we have talked to people about why they haven't got help for for depression and some one of the reasons there are many reasons but one of the reasons is because they you know in their view the treatment is worse than the condition or, or is and and therefore if you can give people a choice of conditions one hopes that that would then um encourage people to get the kind of help that they can find palatable and that would be one way of dealing with what is a very widespread condition that affects all ages of, you know, all, all ages and any anybody from any background. Other advantages of these sorts of neuromodulations is that is that, um, you know, they're safer and they can avoid huge levels of polypharmacy, which uh, in someone, often people who are the least able to cope with that are often on the maximum amount of drugs. Some of them, one, some of my PPI group have said that um, they're on twenty different drugs. You know, you don't want to add in twenty-first or a twenty-second. If you could find another way of dealing with it, that would be 
you know, much better, wouldn't it, rather than continually adding to that. And no one knows what 21 drugs or 20 drugs might do, mm. for sure. Yeah, so it's about it. giving more choice, but also looking towards how how different kinds of treatments could be could be combined or could be sort of done sequentially. You know, maybe one yes. maybe a neuromodulation makes you better able to yes be ready so your, for a psychological therapy. Yes, yes, absolutely. And and your commentary, the person who did the commentary, nothing to do with me, makes this point very well that there are particular groups of people or combinations that these sorts of things could could work with in in, in more systematic approaches. Yeah. The GPs also will tell you that um, in their discussions with patients, they there's the diagnosis of, of it, and then there's the question about whether to do it or not. And, you know, they go with whatever the person is willing to do, you know, willing to do usually, and uh, they often make several suggestions and, you know, people don't, you know, not keen on any of them or they say, oh, I've tried that one, let's try this approach, you know. Yeah. So uh, I think in many practical ways. So it's certainly quite a popular option for GPs. It's easy to use. Yeah. And we've produced a lot of video material. We, we it's, it's also a topic that our patient and public involvement people are really keen to support which helps because yeah. of the but it's just uh, uh, you know the trial it may have all these features but the trial at the end of the day did not show uh, a distinct a difference from sham so any in the form in the trial itself is not is not uh, you know we, we haven't got evidence of effectiveness so we can hardly recommend it for that purpose yeah but it's a, it's a step towards understanding what's going on with this kind of treatment. Yeah, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I think it's important to note that, it's, that this is a for a proportion of people and also health professionals, GPs, we recruited 25 practices. This is something which seems feasible, acceptable. I mean, that's a, that's a start. Yeah. So I think that there's something there to build on, and 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 as an approach, it's, it's got some, you know, some merits to it as one of one of the number of approaches. It's certainly, you know, one that, that could be developed. But we just need to to find out more effective approaches mm-hmm. and uh, and um, how how they would be used. Yeah, so, and whether um, they would be perhaps more appropriate for. For anxiety than depression, even though, for, as you said, an, they are often coming together. For anxiety, there might still be scope for particular types of depression. Mm-hmm. Or, uh, I mean, if, for instance, uh, I mean, depression takes, is not just one group. No, no, it's it, there's there's very there's the categories. There's also if if this was a viable treatment, for instance, for long term use but not for short-term use, then there are groups of people who, you know, a smaller group of people has to be said, but nevertheless a significantly significant number. There are are as many people with treatment-resistant depression or chronic depression as there are people with, for instance, psychosis. So it's, it's you know, there's a very substantial group of people and 
people not well served, I think, by the by mental health services. They tend to be, by their nature, rather withdrawn from society. And, and other research we've done, including research you've published in the journal before some time ago, you know, the usual treatment is sort of really neglect. It, you know, it, it's they're just left partly because nobody knows what to do with them and partly because they're not the type of patient who's banging on the door to get help because they're withdrawn and lacking motivation and just essentially hidden away from from most of society. So, you know, even, even if these approaches were more for that group of people, that would be a step forward from where we are now. Yeah. So there are lots of groups of people with mm-hmm. depression there might be approaches that suit some of those people and not others. So anyway, um, our, our group will, you know, is intended to, is intending to continue to research these sorts of approaches amongst others. We don't just do that, but we're, you know, we're, we're interested in, in, in doing that and we'll, we will be pursuing other, other work of this sort of nature. Wonderful. Well, thank you, thank you. very much for telling me, all about it. It's been very interesting to to talk to you about the wider context of the of that research. Yes, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. You're very welcome. So you can read Professor Morris's research online now at thelancet.com. So thanks to you, Richard, and thank you for listening to this episode of In Conversation with. And remember, you can subscribe to In Conversation with the Lancet Psychiatry wherever you get your podcasts.